welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Onion Radio News, the Colbert Report, This American Life, Counterspin, The Daily Show, and The Tom Hartman Show. Record numbers of Americans are settling for sex at home. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. As the economy continues to slip, more and more U.S. citizens are getting by with sexual intercourse at home and are now taking a pass on costly prostitutes and escort services. Sexologist Dr. Henry Viner says Americans who have long taken pride in the relentless pursuit of sexual pleasure have been forced to do more with less. The fact is that people are having sex with their spouses and uh, the occasional babysitter. Uh, It's like 1975 all over again. There is light at the end of the tunnel, however, as the Ford Motor Company readies its first hybrid party van for production later this year. Royal Redwood for the Onion Radio. legislation and its regulatory overreach is the author of Strapped, Why America's 20 and 30-somethings can't get ahead. Please welcome Tamara Drought. Thank you so much. Let me get this out of the way. Now, Tamara, tell me, what's wrong with the credit card companies? Why do we need this legislation? We need it because the entire industry is, is built on a business model of gotcha tactics that is designed to keep people in debt at a very high cost. But that's what business is about. It's, I got your money. (laughs) And got you, they do. To the tune of $18 billion in penalty fees alone last year. But don't break the penalties and you don't have to pay the fees. But they want you to. And they design all sorts of tricks and traps to mess you up. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're out of town. So your credit card bill, your, your payment arrives maybe a day late. They're going to jack up your rate to 29, 30%, apply it to your existing balance, and slap you with a fee. They move P.O. boxes across the country, so hopefully your payment arrives just a little bit late. They send the bill even closer and closer to the due date. They want you to trip up. That's how they make money. I can afford to be taken advantage of, okay? I think it's the poor people who can't afford to get ripped off who are ruining this for everybody. Well, they're the ones who are subsidizing you to get your free convenience loan every month. You know, the way we use credit has changed. Our research at Demos has shown that a lot of households are dealing, um, using credit cards for things like car repairs, for medical expenses, prescription drugs, you name it. But basic necessities, and they are getting walloped with with all of these practices. Now, look, this is described as the credit card holder's bill of rights, okay? 
What about the credit card's rights? Does my credit card have the right to keep and bear arms? Well, you know, they have a lot of rights. In fact... They have the right to assemble they, in my wallet. They do. biggest right of all. They have the right to change the terms of your account at any time for well, any if reason. If you don't like it, you don't have to get a credit card. I mean, like, what, what's I don't, all this talk about, like, we have to protect people. It's just a business. You don't have to get a credit card unless you, you know, want to rent a car or buy a house or <laughs> use the internet or use a right. cell phone or right. rent a movie right. or have a credit rating. Right. <laughs> That's right. It's like a captive market for them. And at the same time, there's no rules in place to protect people from uh, really abusive practices on a product that has become essential to functioning in this economy. Let me ask you this. What's in your wallet? <laughs> Do you I'm have credit selling. cards? Of course. Because you're so down, I thought maybe you had buffalo pelts or something like no. that in there. No? I'm still using good old American plastic. Now, uh, why don't we let the market just decide how credit card companies should behave? Because if they're all so abusive and everything, why doesn't just somebody create one credit card company that's not just tearing into the flesh of their consumers and won't everybody run to that company? Isn't that what the free market says? Well, ideally it would work that way, but it hasn't happened because there's no incentive to offer sort of an honest credit card. That's what regulation does. It says, hey, you can be profitable, but we're going to make sure those profits aren't ill-gotten and that they're not made by taking advantage of people and tricking them into paying a lot more than they signed up for. I just think you're, it's cheating to level the playing field. <laughs> I'm going to put $18 billion back in people's pockets. Can you start with mine? <laughs> Tamara, thank you so much for joining us. Tamara Drogt, the Vice President of Policy and Programs at Demos, a New York think tank. We'll be right back. What's the point if you ain't dying? Careful of What's the point with a love makes you office park at Irvine, California, in a conference room with fluorescent lights, wheelie chairs, a whiteboard, something totally unrecession-like is taking place. New employee orientation. Okay, can I get everybody's attention again, please? 32 new employees arranged in three long rows. These are the FDIC's newest recruits. The FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, not only insures the money that you and I keep in the bank, it's also the agency that closes down banks when they fail. Since uh, banks fail almost every weekend now, yes, a bank fails every weekend. And in fact, most weekends lately, it's two banks. The FDIC needs help. These people here are only 32 of 600 people the agency is hiring for this regional office. 600 new agents to train about bank failures. 
600 new computer accounts. Log in, and then on the left-hand side, type in no fear. And hit enter. Got that? No fear, then enter. The FDIC's mission is to ensure stability in the banking system. What that means, actually, when a bank fails, is something pretty dramatic. The government rolls in, unannounced, shuts the bank down, and takes it over as a way to protect our deposits. The whole thing is planned like a SWAT team if SWAT teams had accountants in them. And the reason that they do it this way is that if the public found out that the bank was failing before the government actually stepped in, people might pull their deposits out and cause a run on the bank. Also, if people working at the bank knew that the government was going to be seizing the bank, they might steal. They might destroy paperwork. The government believes that this is the best way to protect depositors, you and me. This is Tom Murray, one of the FDIC bosses here. So some of you may go to a bank closing this weekend. Don't tell your significant other where you're going or what you're doing. Don't talk in a conversation that can be overheard. Don't check in at the hotel and say, oh, well, I'm here for this event. Just, you know, you are on a secret mission. Today, we take you on that secret mission. When the FDIC takes over, Hannah Jaffe-Walt talked to all kinds of people involved in one bank failure, a place called the Bank of Clark County in southwest Washington state. Long before most of the Bank of Clark County employees knew their bank was dead, the FDIC was planning its demise. They'd been having meetings, contacting other banks in the region, trying to find one that would take over the Bank of Clark County's assets after it failed. All of these negotiations were top secret. And then the time came. Thursday, January 15, 2009, the operation begins. 80 FDIC agents pull into Vancouver, Washington. Their rental cars are generic, their arrival time staggered. One by one, the agents check into the hotel, each quietly offering a fake name to the guy at the desk. 9 p.m., the FDIC calls the CEO of another bank nearby, Umqua Bank. Your bank, they tell him, has been selected to take over the bank of Clark County. You can't tell anyone. Come to a meeting tomorrow at noon. The FDIC will tell you everything you need to know. And so, Friday morning, the bank of Clark County employees get up, go to work, turn on the lights, and go about their day. And Rick Carey, a vice president from Umqua Bank, sits down with the FDIC and begins to plan. We actually met with the FDIC meeting, uh, beginning at about 12.30 on Friday, and they were in a, uh, in a hotel under a different name. Um, you know, every, it, we made sure that there was no one uh, from outside of our two organizations there. Does it feel like a spy movie? It almost does. Uh, they, uh, they know what they're doing. Yeah, they've done this before quite a production. My name is Todd Zalk, Bank of Clark County, the best community business bank because we've changed the game in business banking and we were winning. <laughs> Often when I would go to a networking meeting or event, I would introduce myself that way. Todd Zalk is what you call a team player, total bank loyalist to the end, beyond the end. Four weeks after the failure, Todd's still wearing his Bank of Clark County name tag, still passing out his bank business cards, always with a warm handshake, constant eye contact, inserting your name whenever possible. Friday, as Rick Carey snuck into the nondescript FDIC secret location, Todd was playing for the team, 
most of the day I had spent out meeting with businesses. I had a couple networking events, and then I came back to the bank. And Wait, so you were still bringing business in that Friday? I, I, I actually was. I had people that wanted to open accounts. In fact, Hannah, in the fourth quarter, I opened over 55 accounts for Bank of Clark County. Todd and his coworkers had no idea the bank was about to be taken over. He knew they were going through a rough time. Just last week, the CEO had called a staff meeting about it. But the CEO was clear things were under control. He used this analogy that we were the ship, you know, and we've gone through a storm and that we were, you know, a little bit tattered, but we were still weathering it well and that we uh, maybe were taking on a little bit of water and we were looking for someone to maybe buy the bank and had a few buyers that were very interested. And within the next 60 days, we should know if who who the new face of the bank would be. So that's what I had thought. Many, many Bank of Clark County employees told me about the ship meeting. Mostly, it made sense to them. The CEO said they were doing okay. They were doing okay. But in fact, things have been changing at the bank since 2005. That's when they went big into commercial and real estate loans. They were a young bank. They felt they had to be aggressive. And sometimes that meant making loans other banks wouldn't have made. Loans that ended up killing them. Washington state regulators audit every bank several times a year, and they noted the Bank of Clark County's declining health. Its capital reserves were getting low, so low the bank was in danger of not being able to cover its debts and obligations. And then, you know this story, housing prices dropped, developers couldn't make payments. The story finally ends Friday, January 16th, 5.01 p.m. Two FDIC agents and a Washington state regulator enter the Bank of Clark County. Casual, head straight for the CEO's office. There, behind closed doors, they deliver the news. They tell him his bank is undercapitalized. It has failed. 5.03 p.m., an agent positioned by the CEO's office door types this news into a BlackBerry. It's received by everyone on the FDIC takeover team. 5.05 p.m., FDIC agents begin closing in on the bank. A few are already inside, quietly and discreetly securing the cash in the vaults. Todd Zalk, oblivious to all this, heads back into the office after a long day of work. I could tell that the mood at the bank seemed odd, and I thought, well, hmm, I wonder if they found a buyer, and kind of people have heard, because I was gone most of the day. And so I went in and asked, and they said that um, there was going to be a meeting at 6 o'clock, and that there might be an announcement as to who the buyer might be or, or what that would look like. Todd hung around, said hello to some customers, did some banking. By this time, it was quarter to six, and I went up to someone that was uh, an executive or senior vice president of the bank, and I said, how are you doing? And they said, oh, I'm doing all right. And I could tell something was going on, and they didn't want to say. And we looked across to the other side of the, the bank, and there was two employees adjusting pictures on the wall. And he looked over at that, and I saw his gaze go over to the wall. And so I looked over at the wall, and he kind of laughed, and he said, wow, he says, that reminds me of adjusting the chairs on the Titanic before it sank. And that really told me something was going down. People started to gather, and there was just this real sense of, this isn't good, and we're not sure what it is, but it's not good. 
Well, then uh, we hit, it was probably very close, just a minute or two after 6 o'clock, and Mike Worthy, our CEO, came out, and he stood up and said, well, I've used the analogy that we were a ship that was taken on some water and we needed to pull up next to a bigger ship and see if they wouldn't take us on in our crew. And we thought we had a few buyers for that, but now the biggest ship that sails the seas has come alongside us, and they are going to be taking us over, and that is essentially the federal government. I would like to introduce the state of Washington regulators, and he sat down, and the state of Washington stood up and said, we are now taking possession of the bank, of all of its assets, and we are turning them over to the receivership of the FDIC. Well, I shall have, I should not pay bills. I shall have, I should not pay bills. Like a tree standing by the of his national radio show, Rush Limbaugh made plain what many have heretofore identified as the racist subtext of conservative attacks on the White House. Here's what Limbaugh said. As the economy performs worse than expected, the deficit for the 2010 budget year beginning in October will worsen by $87 billion to $1.3 trillion. The deterioration reflects lower tax revenues and higher costs for bank failures, unemployment benefits, and food stamps. But in the Oval Office of the White House, none of this is a problem. This is the objective. The objective is unemployment. The objective is more food stamp benefits. The objective is more unemployment benefits. The objective is an expanding welfare state. And it, it, the objective is to take the nation's wealth and return it to the nation's, quote, rightful owners. Think reparations. Think forced reparations here if you want to understand what actually is going on. Well, that was Rush Limbaugh. As Steve Bennon of the Political Animal blog put it, quote, the substance of Limbaugh's argument is obviously insane, but the racism of his attack is hardly subtle. It's almost hard to believe the nation's leading conservative argued in all seriousness that the president of the United States is trying to destroy the economy on purpose as part of a forced reparations campaign, close quote. Well, if Limbaugh is the voice of opposition, it's little wonder that the movement's increasingly shrinking ranks are also increasingly concentrated in the states of the old Confederacy. You were far away. And I. What could I say? 
At that point in time, uh, a signal was given to uh, to myself and uh, and basically. What kind of a signal? Uh, it was an email. What did the message say when you got it on your BlackBerry? Oh, just uh, it's time. It's time. Yeah, it's time. Come in. Six oh five. 
Rick gets out of the car and starts walking toward the bank. Inside, a woman from the FDIC takes the stage. She said within the next 10 minutes, there will be 80 FDIC employees coming into the bank. And I looked out there, and it was dark, so I couldn't really see. And then all of these people, and mostly in suits and professional clothing with attorney-type briefcases, started entering the bank, just flooding into the bank. And I was so awestruck at them coming in, and so many of them coming into the bank, that I turned around and looked over there and just kept watching them, and they just continued to come. I mean, 80? I mean, our bank had like 100 employees. And at this time, it was dark outside, and a flash flashed out in the parking lot. The flash was the Columbia newspaper taking a picture for Saturday morning's front page news that the bank had failed. All of this happened, Hannah, in just a matter of minutes. So things are going through my mind like I just lost almost $25,000 worth of stock I bought four months ago in Bank of Clark County in my bank. I mean, I'm investing in my bank, and, and most of the employees were shareholders. And so so for me, there was a sense of, gosh, I think I just lost all my stock. <laughs> and I looked around the bank. I saw some people crying. I saw some people with just a, a white face, blank stare on their face, just in shock. Some people had their face on their their hand on their face and just were like, I can't believe this. Like, oh my gosh. Six ten PM, Rick Carey from Umqua Bank is introduced to the confused employees of the bank he now owns. They have a whole bunch of questions running through their heads. First among them, do we get to keep our jobs? Rick can't answer that. Umco will only need about a third of the Clark County staff, the people who actually deal with customers and the branches. Most of the support staff and administration will be let go. But it's too soon to let each person know whether he or she has a job. Rick is put in charge of supervising a full-on manual hand count of all the bank's cash. A couple of his staff grab the cash and begin to count. The Bank of Clark County people watch Umqua. The FDIC watches them both. This takes three hours. Meanwhile, Bank of Clark County staff come up to Rick to introduce themselves, tell him how important they are at the bank. They're worried for their jobs. And Rick has other things on his mind. He bought the bank from the FDIC for a pretty good price, and he only has to take the good parts, the insured deposits and the actual branch buildings. The FDIC will keep all the bad stuff, the problem loans. But there's still a lot to think about. You know, I have to be open in three days. What do I want that store to look like? Uh, I remember that one of the first things we did uh, that evening was contact their plants provider and make sure that they were arranged to have uh, 25 large plants taken out of the, you know, out of the facility. That's right. we have a very clean operating environment at Umqua, and plants aren't part of our our uh, mo, and and so those were to be removed immediately. And uh, uh, we were looking at signage, uh, so I, I basically was making a note of what signs uh, that we needed to change, replace, how quickly quickly we wanted to do that. We wanted to make it look like Umqua as quickly as possible. 
Meanwhile, FDIC agents have already secured the vaults and the cash. They've grabbed a couple hard drives. Now they need to inventory the entire bank. Every account needs to be transferred to Umqua. The bank has to open its doors Tuesday morning. Monday was Martin Luther King Day, bank holiday. To get all this done, the FDIC needs the Bank of Clark County staff to help them, to show them where the files are, who the customers are, how to get to the bathroom. And so, at 6.15 p.m., the FDIC makes an announcement. We need y'all to sign in on this sheet of paper, everyone. As of right now, for the weekend, you're all temporary employees of the FDIC. We're going to need you to stay late tonight, work through the weekend. You will be paid for your time. We'll feed you. We need your help. Ken Moody was vice president of information systems at the Bank of Clark County. You know, again, most of us were planning on leaving at the end of the day. And so, you know, after that announcement was made, we had phone calls to make, you know, call our families. Um, <laughs> my daughter uh, had a seventh birthday that we were going to go to. Pick your time. Um, sorry. I didn't anticipate being this emotional about it. <laughs> kind of silly. p.m., agents take over offices, storage rooms, hallways, any space available. They tape handmade signs to the doors, written on 8.5 by 11 sheets of printer paper, saying things like audit, security, investigations. It's a little chaotic. The FDIC moves room to room. They go through files, transfer accounts. They change the website. They check the safe deposit boxes, make sure everything that's supposed to be in there is in there. They go through desk drawers. They toss out bank letterhead. Once agents have scanned a room for all critical information, they place a green dot on its doorframe. Then they take all that paperwork, all the hard drives, all the files, and the FDIC has to reconstruct the bank's entire balance sheet. It has to know what it's selling to Umqua, what's actually there. Any account with a balance up to $250,000 is fully insured by the FDIC. If the bank doesn't have the money to cover the balance, the government will pay it out. But some people have more than 250, and there are business accounts and loans, and it gets complicated. Some is covered, some is not. The FDIC now sorts all that out. Things started happening very quickly and with what seemed to be a lot of precision. 6.25 p.m. in the IT department, three agents approach Ken Moody, the IT guy. They hand him a thumb drive. Please plug this in, they say. It has all the software to change your computer systems over to Umqua Bank. That was, you know, kind of a fascinating part about it. So it was almost like, uh, you know, on one hand, it's very sad. You have the death of a loved one. But at the same time, uh, it was like watching an autopsy being performed by a really skillful surgeon. They just came in and just sliced and diced and, you know, broke the bank up into different uh, pieces and threw them into different buckets and, and did it with great efficiency. An autopsy of the yeah, work well, yeah, that you've been doing. An autopsy of, of everything that we've been creating over the last 10 years. At the Bank of Clark County, everyone I talked to said this one thing about the FDIC that stuck with me, something you don't often hear about a government agency, that it did a really good job, that the agents were kind, courteous, and efficient. In fact, everything is ordered, structured, everything, even how and when to grieve. Here's Lisa Stapleton. She was an assistant loan officer with the bank. So many of the people who came in from the FDIC got to where they were because they were part of a bank that failed. And they were all like, you know what? We've been where you are, and we understand, and it's going to be fine. You know, so they were really nice.
The Bank of Clark County had 100 employees and assets of $446 million, which, if you're not used to bank numbers, is a really small bank. But it took 80 FDIC agents, about 50 Bank of Clark County employees, and 100 UMQA employees working around the clock for three days to take it over and have it reopened for business. Most of the largest banks in trouble right now, Citibank, Bank of America, are about 6,000 times the size of Bank of Clark County, not to mention much, much more complicated. So the Secretary of Treasury's latest plan to save the banks does everything it can to avoid using this process on those big banks. When you do this to a little bank, it's called receivership. When you do it to a big bank, people start to throw around the word nationalization. Every week, FDIC agents get more experience taking over banks. In the 10 weeks since they took over the Bank of Clark County, 18 more banks have failed, bringing us to a grand total of 20 failures since the start of this year. Before this weekend, that is, when most likely, they'll add a few more to that list. slam as much soda as possible before Johnny Law tries to infringe on my unquenchable right to life, liberty, and high fructose corn syrup. Mm. Mm. I do not obey big government. I obey my thirst. Mm. You see, folks, Congress, Congress is pushing its latest health care boondoggle. And just listen to how they want to pay for it. Could your sweet tooth for soda help pay for health care reform? Senate leaders are reportedly considering new federal taxes on soda and other sugary drinks to cover a fraction of the $1.2 trillion cost. Hey, Democrats, you can have my soda when you pry it from my cold, diabetic hands. <laughs> Just the idea of this soda tax makes me sick to my stomach. Well, that and the 30 cans of sodas I've had today. Nobody shake me. And I am not the only one who wants to pop a cap in somebody's ass. A tax on soda pop. Are you kidding me? You want to see tax hikes? We're going to be paying, you know, a dollar per soda out of a can. They're also talking about a soda tax. I mean, we can't live anymore. It's a one quarter cent per ounce tax on soda pop. Why shouldn't I blow my brains out? 
Let me... That was one of my more articulate arguments. Let me break down the math for you, nation. Let's say I go to a movie theater and I spend $3.50 for a 20-ounce Coke because I got the Super Saver. Now, if this tax goes through, I'll have to pay five cents on top of that. Now, the syrup in that soda water costs two cents. So instead of paying the present 175 times what the drink is actually worth, now I'm supposed to pay an outrageous 177.5 times what it's worth? For what? Some poor woman's prenatal checkups? Ooh. Basic human decency! Now, supporters want a soda tax because soda causes obesity, costing the nation $127 billion in health care costs a year. But people who drink too much soda aren't fat. They're extreme. <laughs> By the way, is it bad when your urine comes out carbonated? Because I have a friend who wants to know. <laughs> Look, folks, the fact is soft drinks don't cause obesity. And it's not just me saying that. It's also soft drink lobbyists. Soft drinks don't play any role in the obesity epidemic. Soft drinks are just a fun beverage, along with a lot of other beverages and foods that we like to eat or drink. Yeah, things that are fun are never bad for you. <laughs> we learned that from unprotected sex. Nation, we must protest this soda tax. And don't worry, I learned something from last month's protest. This one won't have a name with an embarrassing double meaning like teabagging parties. No, I'm calling these Coke parties. Jimmy, put up that graphic. You see, you see, he's got that dollar bill rolled up his nostril because he's paying out the nose. And he's holding up the razor blade of small government that will cut our taxes. Nation, there's going to be a great protest. We're going to have dancers. It's going to be one long all-night Coke fuel party. I've already signed up some big names. Mayor Marion Barry, Gary Busey, Lord George, and the extras from Entourage. I'm telling you, we're all already twitching with excitement. You give us love, we have to hide. I know, I know, it's shades of gray. You give us hope and give us strife. I know, I know, this price we pay. You tell me no, I ask you why. I know, I know, your patient waits. You wait until we see.
nail on the head. This is, this is the core of the whole thing. Productivity is the ability to produce things. Wages are the money that workers get and thus create demand because those workers then go out and buy things. Productivity is supply. In a supply and demand economy, which is basically the only kind of economy that functions, if you look at the history of the United States from the founding of this country and the institution of the Hamilton Plan in 1793 up until the 1980s, supply and demand followed each other. As the American worker worked harder, as the American worker got more productive, as automation and the Industrial Revolution and other things enhanced the productivity of the American worker, wages went up. In fact, I remember back in the 50s and 60s, there were all these conversations about as robots were coming along and mechanized factories, the day would come when the average work week would be 20 hours and we'd all have enormous amounts of leisure time. And what happened was that during the, during the Reagan era, you had these right-wingers come in with all this, all this money that Bill Simon pulled together in 1974 when he created the, the, the Think Tank Project. There was actually a name for it. I forget the name of it. Um, but, but it was a name that was largely known to, to them within that, that, those circles. He brought together Joe Coors and Richard Mellenscaife and a bunch of other very wealthy right-wingers and founded the Her Heritage Foundation and other right-wing think tanks. And these right-wing think tanks basically declared war on labor. And so wages have been flat or declined for working people in the United States who earn less than a million dollars a year ever since Ronald Reagan first declared war on PATCO in 1981. Wages have been declining, but productivity continues to increase. So there's this gap that has popped open between productivity and between supply and demand, essentially, between supply pr produced by productivity and demand produced by wages. Now, normally that gap, when there is a difference between supply and demand, the economy crashes. You have problems. You have serious problems when there's not, when you've got a lot of supply and you've got no demand, then what happens is typically you go into a depression because, because the excess supply, in order to get rid of that supply, people start, start dropping prices and that's called deflation and deflation then dropping prices then, then uh, puts people out of work and, and, you know, because there's not wages and, and which uh, diminishes demand and it becomes a downward spiral as we saw in 1929 through 1934. But in this case, Alan Greenspan being all in favor of Ronald Reagan's destruction of labor's buying power, Alan Greenspan said, you know, we can fill in that gap between productivity and, and wages, between supply and demand. We'll fill it in with credit. Middle class, they got too much stuff, you know. You got people who've been working in factories for 30 years. All they got is a high school diploma. How dare they own their own homes? How dare they be able to buy a car every three, four years? How dare they be able to put their children in college? They're the middle class and the working poor. They shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't be socially mobile. And this, I'm, I'm serious, this is the conservative perspective. Classes and orders, the third or fourth chapter of Russell Kirk's book, The Conservative Mind, the one that kicked off the conservative revolution. Conservatives believe in classes and order, a rigidly ordered society. They do not think that people should be able to change classes that they should be able to move from the working, the working class or the working poor into the middle class or into the upper middle class or even into the upper classes of society. They like it when a few people do, conspicuously, because they can hold that, oh, look at that, Bill Clinton, poor boy from Hope, Arkansas, he became president. Anybody, anybody can become president. Fact of the matter is anybody can't become president. It's very rare.
but it, it makes for a good story for them. But they figured, okay, we can fill in that gap. And what are we going to fill in that gap with? We're going to fill it in with debt. We're going to let the average American working person go so far in debt, and we're going to let their children in college go so far in debt that we've got them by the short hairs. We've got slaves. And that's where we're at today. We went from a nation of free men and women in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s where people owned their own homes with a, with, a, with a good union job and a high school diploma. They could own their own homes. They could put their kids through school. Kids could go to college at, and pay for it with a summer job, as I did and as my wife did. They, they, they took all that stuff and flushed it down the toilet and said, you want to you go to college? You're going to graduate with $100,000 in debt. We're going to own your soul. And you want to be a working person and have a decent lifestyle and even be able to afford to take a vacation? You're going to have to mortgage your home. We're going to own your home. exciting news. I just bought a car. Company. And so did all of you, apparently. General Motors announced plans to cut another 21,000 jobs and give the government outright control of the company. That would give taxpayers a majority stake. Oh, my God. Taxpayers own GM? We may have just ruined car salesmen's lives. Oh, really? You got to talk to your manager? Well, why don't you go tell your manager that his boss, the owner, <laughs> thinks I should get the undercoating on the house. Now go home and get your f***ing shine box! Mother Jimmy, keep him here! <laughs> that was... That was... That was from Goodfellas? <laughs> Not interested in a GM car? Turns out you also own one of its competitors. The U.S. and Canadian governments will own 10% of the new Chrysler. The majority will be owned by the United Auto Workers. And the car union owns the car company? <laughs> you get a smoke break! You get a smoke break! Everybody gets a smoke break! Also from Goodfellas. <laughs> While many may view the dissolution of two of the most famous car brands as bad news, at least Chrysler has a plan to turn that frown upside down. Sure, Chrysler just entered Chapter 11, but under restructuring, it will soon be run by Italian car maker Fiat, bringing Detroit much-needed leadership from the country that, with Hitler's help, once fought Ethiopia to a draw. <laughs> Is there anyone who can put an incredibly positive spin on the Fiat takeover, a Chrysler insider, perhaps?
I think they're going to save the jobs, the company, the auto industry, the Midwest, and restart the economy in 30 to 60 days. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm in a hurry because I'm taking a white tiger ride to a fine restaurant for my date with Angelina Jolie. Yes, Angelina Jolie, and she's a virgin again. Of course, Detroit's revival depends largely on the strength of the overall financial system. And it just so happens the government's got that one covered as well. The Treasury Department on Thursday is going to give us these long-awaited uh, stress tests on the banks. These tests were conducted to see if these banks, how their health is, their financial health, will they be able to withstand further eroding of the economy? Oh, goody! I can't wait to learn if our banks can withstand the they caused. <laughs> the tests involve the government examining financial companies' books to see if they could survive certain hypothetical worst-case scenarios and then not tell the public the results. Yeah. Look, the, the Treasury Secretary came out and said most of them will be healthy. But if you name the two that aren't, uh, might that cause a run on those two banks? Do we want all the information or do we want to not have the banks collapse? Do you want to know how the financial system works? Or do you want the financial system to work? <laughs> apparently the banks are taking this stress test. Pass, pass. I can't wait to see how the Obama administration revitalizes the educational system. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, first of all, I just want to say hello to those of you who I met last night. It was good to see you guys. If you're not aware, there is a big liberal progressive conference going on in D.C. right now. It's the one they used to call the Take Back America conference before we took it back. And so now they call it something else. And so all the liberal radio shows in the country come to the conference and, and hang out. So there was a Young Turks meetup last night, but... If you've been listening for a while or, or are just catching on, um, you'll, you have or will gather soon that the Young Turks are among my you know, favorite shows that I like to use. So um, there's a lot of cross-pollination in our uh, listenership and, and fans. So Young Turks fans who showed up at the meetup, a uh, few of them knew of the best of left. Some even had found the Young Turks through us. So that was... Uh, very exciting, and I, which I always love to hear. I'm, I love to know that people don't just, you know, like this show, but but they actually move on and follow the other shows more closely. I'm all about um, promoting these other guys and and getting them more listeners to whatever small capacity I'm able. So it was an excellent little meetup, and uh, and it was lots of fun. So I have some mildly good news. I just want to let you know that the show is now available on the Stitcher service. And, um, I, you know, maybe it's been around for a little while. It's, it's new to me, but if you're interested, it is, uh, it, think of it as Pandora Radio for talk radio. That, that's the essential idea, and it's a cross-platform service, so you can uh, listen online or on your internet mobile device phone stuff like that so if you're interested in checking that out you now know that this show is available there and you know just the the super quick pitch of it is that you can listen to your favorite podcasts uh, as they come out without having to sync to your computer you can just stream shows straight to your phone as well as streaming to your computer moving back and forth from one to the other so that's something you guys might be interested in 
So now I have some good news and some bad news. First, the bad news that won't have any effect on you. Um, I did not lose my job, but I kind of lost half of it. Uh, the the recession has uh, come home to roost more uh, thoroughly than it had before, and you know at my regular job that pays my bills, I've been cut down to half time. Um, so I'm basically a part time worker now, and my salary, of course, has been cut down to nearly half of what it was as well. Uh, this obviously leaves a giant hole in my uh, financial outlook. And, and the idea is that I can continue working there and, uh, and find something else to do. Um, to make some money, obviously. Which leads to the good news that will have an effect on you, actually. So I'm not, as, you, as one might expect, um, running out trying to find another part-time job to fill that hole. I'm actually seizing this as a golden opportunity. And, you know, and, and I'm not freaking out about it either. I've decided to attempt to make this podcast a part-time job. So obviously it's going to take a lot of work, uh, mostly by me, <laughs> admittedly, and, uh, and a lot of help from you guys. So just to give you, you know, a, a, a tiny bit of reference, uh, we just had the Memorial Day weekend just recently and so everyone went camping and relaxed and came back after the three-day weekend and we all talked about what we did with our time and my answer was I put in 30 hours of work on my podcast because I'm trying to uh, turn it into a part-time job so uh, starting next week I will be literally dedicating you know two and a half full days a week, but of course it'll be much more than that, to the show, and that means good things for you guys, more shows, starting basically right now, this show um, is coming out in the middle of the week, we've, we've been posting just on the weekends, and we're going to start posting two shows a week, so that'll be good for you guys, hoping that you're excited about that. Uh, I know I am, because there's too much news going on. There's too much going on, and I'm actually backed up on clips. I have too much to share with you guys and, and know where to put it. So two shows a week is the plan, but I will be asking for something in return. Now, I've said very, very consistently all along that this show will never become a you know premium service. Uh, you have to pay to get the show kind of, uh, kind of situation, and... I've, I don't even want to do, like, a regular show and a bonus feed, you know, pay for extra material show. I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, you know, this show is, has always been about getting information out to as many people as possible, getting as many listeners as possible to uh, spread the news. So, obviously, making you pay for it is against every, uh, every idea that this show has been founded on. But what I will be asking is that you please consider becoming a paying member. And uh, at this moment in time, to buy a membership comes with no perks other than the warm and fuzzy feeling knowing that your help will allow this show to be posted two times a week instead of once. So you don't have to pay, and you will still get the show two times a week. But if you do pay then it is possible that this two times a week can actually continue. 
if this doesn't work out, um, it's going to go back to one time a week, and I'm going to have two jobs, which I'm not uh, excited about at all. And um, But, you know, from your own selfish standpoint, if, uh, if you'd like to hear two shows a week, five bucks a month and getting eight hours of entertainment and information, kind of hard to beat. Now, of course, I say now that there are no perks. They come with membership, and I absolutely hope that that changes. I will be racking my brain to figure out what exactly I can do to incentivize memberships, but I gotta be honest, and, and right now it is, it is just that I need the support. So that's what I'm asking for, is not uh, a ploy to get rich or anything like that. This is absolutely a follow your dreams moment. Um, you know, I could just as easily go find another job, but this podcast is my absolute passion. And if the opportunity is there to try to make it a larger part of my life and and have it support me and, and give me the time to work on it, uh, I mean, obviously, financially, you got to survive. And if the podcast can help do that, which would in turn allow me to produce more and, and put out more shows, it's an opportunity I can't p- pass up, obviously. And I, I really hope you guys would be interested in helping make that happen. So if you have the inclination, check out the website bestofleft.com and go to the donation page. You will see there uh, that you can make you know individual donations of any amount, but there is also a subscription option. And, and you can choose the amount you want to give each month, and that'll just be automatically deducted. And that kind of support gives long-term stability to that kind of income rather than, you know, doing a pledge drive every once in a while. So thank you in advance. Thank you in retrospect for all the support I've had up to this point. I hope to keep it going strong. And uh, and there are more good things coming. So stay tuned. I'll keep you informed. Uh, if you want to be more informed, uh, follow us on Twitter. Sign up for our newsletter. Um, become a fan on Facebook. I'm, I'm doing a much better job of beginning to use those mediums to communicate. So do all those things, get plugged in, and you'll be hearing from me. So that's it for today. Coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend